Good morning and welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. It's Monday and everybody woke up this morning, right? They woke up and the first thing that they saw when they opened up the uh, the Bulwark was this screaming headline. <laughs> Donald Trump is now the odds-on favorite to be president in 2025 by Tim Miller. So, yeah, it's a good, good day to go back to bed early. Uh, joining yeah. me on the, there's so much to talk about today. So coming from behind the paywall, the secret podcast, the next level podcast, JVL joins us on this podcast. So happy Monday morning. Happy Monday. Are you, uh, did, did you, I, I wanted to ask you, how was the grandkids first? Uh, they're a little young for actual sugar consumption, but I assume your son so. put the grandbabies into cute little baby Halloween Abs- costumes. Absolutely. Charlotte went out as a lion um, and Amelia went out as a skunk. Nice. So it was, was very, very nice. And they were out there and um, Charlotte didn't want to take off the, the lion costume. I think it's her new favorite costume now. So I hope may, she never does. This, this may be a thing. And of course, here at my house in Wisconsin, uh, I think we continued our streak now of zero people <laughs> coming to the door, really? which is o- which is okay. You know, I mean, we have we, we, we have a long driveway. We live in the woods. We have scary dogs. So, you know. I feel like this is a Robert Putnam bowling alone kind of example. You know, the, the, the death of trick-or-treating. Well, <sighs> I don't know. I, actually, but there's not the death of trick-or-treating because – The community just to the north of us, Cedarburg, has this, they call it the pumpkin walk. And all the kids come out and they go up and down Main Street and all the businesses come out and they have the buckets and everything. And so like the entire community comes together. And it was, you you have that feeling, this is America. This is the way America is supposed to be. It was just good. Yeah, I guess. I guess. I've been a little bit freaked by the rise of the trunk or treating as opposed to the trick or treating. And because that feels more like the the organized. We want the organic things, right? The organic house to house, little platoons, all that stuff, not the semi organized, big government trunk or treating kind of thing. You know, see, so I'm old enough to remember when we went out by ourselves at night. I mean, first of all, it was really fun to go out at night. And it never occurred to anyone to have your parents come along with you. And that's just like a totally different era now. I mean, just I wouldn't even think of it now. I'm not being judgmental about it because I, I wouldn't you know, send my grandkids out without an adult. But, but you know, back in the day, we ran with scissors. You weren't we, scared we, of the urban stories about people who put razor blades in the apples they give you. You can't, you know, d- d- you don't remember any of these things that before your time or after your time, I should say. In my day. Nobody handed out apples. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I remember when the first fruit was like, what is this? What fresh hell? What innovation is this? Throw They're giving back. us apples. Exactly. All right. So we have a lot to talk about. We have the Virginia election yesterday. We have some gruesome polls for Joe Biden. I want to get your, your take on, obviously, this debate about the Trumpian restoration. The Atlantic magazine, normally level-headed, advising never Trumpers out there that this is a great time to get behind Ron DeSantis. I have some issues with that. I want to talk about that. But um, late on Friday morning, while we were actually taping this podcast, we got the news that Adam Kinzinger, who's a friend of this podcast, who will be on shortly. um, We're going to we're going to book him back on a Republican congressman from Illinois. 
became the latest casualty, or I, maybe that's that's putting it too negative. Let's say the latest sane Republican to self-deport himself from um, the Republican Party, or at least elected office in the Republican Party. He announced he's not running for re-election. Um, not a huge shock, considering that he would face a tough primary. And the Democrats had decided basically to screw him over with redistricting. But uh, Adam Kinzinger was um, was on was on with George Stephanopoulos yesterday. And, and Stephanopoulos asked Kinzinger if he'd handed Trump a win by announcing that he wasn't running again. Trump actually issued a statement two down, eight to go in reference to the 10 Republicans who'd voted for impeachment. This is what Kinzinger had to say. If he runs in 2024, he'll be the front runner, no doubt. But I think the Republican establishment now, whether it's the NRCC, whether it's Kevin McCarthy, have held on to Donald Trump. They have continued to breathe life into him. And so actually, it's not really handing a win as much to Donald Trump as it is to the cancerous kind of lie and conspiracy, not just wing anymore, but mainstream argument of the Republican Party. This is not on, you know, the 10 of us that voted to impeach. It's not on Liz Cheney and I to save the Republican Party. It's on the 190 Republicans who haven't said a dang word about it. And they put their head in the sand and hope somebody else comes along and does something. Yeah. So, JVL, nobody else is coming along, are they? (laughs) (laughs) Waiting for Godot. Romney walking through that door. Uh, No, this is, you know, I would actually go a step further than Adam does here, though, which is to say it's it's not even about the other 190 Republicans. It's about the 74 million Republican yeah. voters who want this. I mean, this is the power flows upward from the people. And if Republican voters want this stuff, then they're going to get candidates and elected officials who give it to them. And, you know, we, we've up, I we've really we used to live in a world where the parties had a good deal of power. Yeah. Uh, remember, the party decides and all that. And that isn't the world we live in anymore. We've really thoroughly democratized uh, our political nominating process, and we've we've moved a lot of the power away from the party infrastructure itself. You know, that's funny. That's one of the, the big lessons of the Virginia race, actually, is that Glenn Youngkin is only possible because the Virginia Republican Party didn't let Republican voters pick the nominee. This is you know other, otherwise they would have had a full MAGA candidate. <laughs> So this is, you know, this is going to happen everywhere. This is, it's, it's like the, you guys talked about this on the show oh, last right. week with Mitch McConnell em- embracing Herschel Walker. It's because Mitch McConnell is not in charge and the people who vote for Herschel Walker are. You know, so I'm going to get to Virginia in, in just a second, but, but, you know, Tim's piece leading the bulwark today, you know, that Donald Trump is now the odds on favor to be president in 2025. I, I agree with him and I don't think it's alarmist. And he says this is a wake up call that people should, you know, start taking really, you know, effing seriously the notion that a guy who incited a deadly mob at the Capitol in an attempt to overthrow our democracy is the front runner to become president again. And then he gives out some advice. Democrats might want to focus more on competence and broadening their appeal rather than participating in an internecine murder suicide. Over how many trillions of dollars they spend, media should probably start treating Trump like the front runner he is rather than the drunk uncle whose deranged ravings can be ignored. Uh, most importantly, and this is what you were just getting at here, Republican politicians and commentators and voters uh, who claim they don't want a wannabe authoritarian lunatic to become president again should probably do something to try and stop it. And he's right on all of those accounts. But over the weekend, I see, you know, Senator, Senator Tim Scott 
is uh, preemptively saying, well, of course, I'll vote for Donald Trump in 2024 if he runs. I mean, they're just they're like giving it away to him. Yeah, I mean, no surprise there. I mean, Tim Scott wouldn't even say that that Donald Trump lost the election. <laughs> I mean, this guy's just uh, utterly craven. And I don't, you know, I the, the problem is that in there is only one logical place to go if you do believe this stuff. And that logical place is is leaving conservatism, Inc. and leaving the Republican Party. And for a lot of people, that just isn't possible. You know, like they they're so wedded to the constructs that they grew up with. They're so wedded to their own tribal loyalties. And uh, that stuff just doesn't die easily, you know, because to do that, as you and I can tell people from experience, you've got to lose a bunch of friends. Maybe yeah. if you work in conservatism, Inc., you lose your livelihood. You know, maybe there are a whole lot of real world consequences that flow downward for people who are actually involved in politics. And there aren't necessarily real world consequences, but there are. It's a tough thing for somebody who has voted R their entire lives to then say, geez, I just I can't do that anymore right now. And, you know, maybe not for forever, but uh, but for the foreseeable future, that that's just that's well, just not are. a thing I can do. And everybody is sort of sitting around waiting for somebody else to do something or the meteor to fall from you know the sky that, that will solve this problem. It feels very much like 2015. So speaking of which, though. Um, do you have some thoughts on Major League Baseball? I, no, I, oh okay, okay, you know where I'm going on this. So, <sighs> so earlier this year, if I if I have the the story straight, uh, Trump called for a complete boycott of Major League Baseball because of whatever. Uh, Major League Baseball pulled the All Star Game from the state of Georgia, from Atlanta, you know, in protest of its restrictive voting laws. And last night, not only, are, of course, is Major League Baseball back in a big way in Atlanta with, with the World Series, but the commissioner invited the orange one to come. And so my social feed, social media feed is filled with Donald Trump there in all of his glory, you know, in Atlanta at the World Series doing the tomahawk chop. So there's kind of a pattern here where institutions have decided that they're going to normalize Trump. Right. They're going to normalize Trump. And no matter how much the, the threats and the insults are, it's going to be OK in the end. Right. He, he, he gets what he wants. Always. And oh, why? <laughs> I mean, because he owns a political party and a political party is a very powerful thing. And he, he owns it in a way that no politician in our lifetimes has ever owned an American political party. Like that just hasn't been the way things have worked. And, you know, people had a hard time coming to understand that that was going to be the case. I, I was, you know, back in September, I was writing, hey, when Donald Trump loses this election, uh, and by the way, I mean, I mean, September of last right. year, right. I was saying when Donald Trump loses this election, he's going to say that he won. Right. And the Republican Party is all going to agree with him. And he's going to be the nominee in 2024. People told me I was nuts. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, one of, one of our good friends who you know, knows more about, has forgotten more about politics than I, I will ever know, said, uh, he told me privately, he said, look, people hate losers. And they're, you know, they can smell this stuff. They're going to move on. They got to they got to get power. That's all they care about. They'll, they'll be in yesterday's news. And I just said, I don't, I don't think that's true anymore. That's not what the Republican party is. The Republican party is not a, an organization of people seeking to amass power in order to enact policy goals. It is a lifestyle brand 
uh, organized around a single person, right, which right. is interested in pursuing grievance and emotions and making themselves feel better. Well, this is why punditry is so difficult these days, because, you know, our friend who knows so much about politics, you know, had a very plausible argument there because it was based on history. All history would suggest that that was what was going to happen. You know, a disgraced one term president generally fades from the scene if the past is in any way prologue. But as you're pointing out, it's no longer a reasonable guide because something has been deranged on the timeline. Yeah. And, yeah. And the, and the rules are all different. And again, it's because the voters that this is yeah. what this is what the voters want. And so it is I mean, it feels to me like an end of history kind of moment where we are in the politics of decadence, uh, where we have an entire political party that that doesn't, again, really have any any concrete policy goals. There are right. You know, they don't want to as we and which is, again, this is something that wasn't obvious. There were a lot of people who said, well, you know, if, if he doesn't build the wall, people will turn on him. And it turns out, no, no, they didn't. They didn't. His voters didn't want the wall. I mean, they were happy to say they wanted the wall because it made the people they hate angry, but they didn't actually need the wall to be built. Uh, it's, it's really all about negative partisanship and a hatred of the other in which the other is other people in America and not like people across the world. So let's get to this whole argument about DeSantis, because I, I think this this relates to this, that, you know, the, the argument that, well, never Trumpers should get behind DeSantis because he's the only way of blocking Donald Trump. I think that sort of, you know, misreads what what never Trumpers are actually all about, that that, yeah, I mean, we'd like to beat Donald Trump again. But, the, you know, Trumpism or whatever you want to call it is also a significant problem. And one of the things that Trump has revealed was things that were already there. I mean, let's face it, Donald Trump was not an innovator. He tapped into a lot of things that were pre-existing conditions, and they have accelerated. So simply going to a cleaned up, more competent, less obviously lunatic, fascist figure like Ron DeSantis doesn't really solve the problem, does it? No, it doesn't. I mean, that Connor's column over the weekend. Con really Connor just Friedersdorf, good guy, smart guy writing this piece in the Atlantic saying that we should get behind Ron DeSantis. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I think it just misreads literally everything. Uh, mm -hmm. as, as you say, it misreads yeah. the sort of first principles, which is that uh, none of this stuff is acceptable. Like all of it leads, you know, even if you downgrade to somebody like Ron DeSantis, uh, you are leaving in place all the dynamics which make it possible to level back up to a full-blown demagogue who is willing to uh, destroy democracy. Because again, the anti-democratic aspects of Trumpism are not bugs, they are features. That's what they like. And you really got to, if you want to have a healthy Republican Party, which you should want because democracy only works on the honor system. You need two healthy parties. Having one toxic party, which is anti-democratic, and one healthy, normal-ish party doesn't, you know, that's a Band-Aid. So if you want to return to a healthy Republican Party, uh, you got to get rid of this stuff, root and branch. But also the idea that the never-Trumpers are going to help push candidate X over the, the top is, is the craziest thing in the world. I mean... For, for National Review to come out and anoint candidate X, whoever that is, as the future of the Republican Party, would doom them. That would be the kiss of death. For, for the candidate, yeah. For the candidate, yeah. Because, uh, again, this is the voters, the base, they hate the elites. And they even hate the elites who are nominally on their side. And uh, 
So yeah, I, I just think it's crazy. And then of course it also misreads the what DeSantis's motives are. I mean, DeSantis would never there, there's no scenario in which Ron DeSantis would challenge Donald Trump for the 2024 nomination. Uh, I'm not even convinced, honestly, right. that no, DeSantis no would be willing to challenge one of the Trump family members. So, I mean, let's let's just pretend we live in a universe in which uh, Donald Trump hems and haws about whether he's not, he's going to run and teases it all the way up in order to freeze the field. And then at the last minute, he substitutes Don Jr. in and says that Don Jr. is going to run. I don't think this is likely, but I'm just saying let's pretend. I do not think Ron DeSantis would be willing to run against Don Jr. for the nomination. And I'm not sure he could beat him in this particular environment, even yeah, though that, I don't think that, he could that isn't. But, you yeah. know, your your point earlier about that the real problem is the 74 million. I mean, see, this is the, the, the flaw in and I think the incredible naivete on the part of some uh, folks who believe that, well, Ron DeSantis would at least get us past Donald Trump would at least would be less you know, existentially terrifying, which he is less existentially terrifying in the way I suppose that drinking arsenic is less existentially terrifying than having your head put into a wood chipper. But anyway, the the point is, though, that the leadership of the right is not at the top. These are all followers. And so the question is, who would greenlight these impulses? Donald Trump has, you know, opened up, has given permission to all of these uh, irritable gestures, etc. But so would Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis would not reel it in. He would not... Uh, channel it into more constructive heat because they're all followers. And this is the key. Every one of these people are followers of the worst impulses in the Republican Party right now. That's that's such a great point. And, you know, you really see it from from talk radio world, right? I mean, all these guys who are anti-Trump, the Dennis Prakers of the world, right, who and the the Harwitzes of the world, they were anti-Trump so long as they thought that Trump could be beaten and they thought that they were leading their listeners and that it turned out that their listeners were in charge and they had to follow them. And uh, I think that's exactly the way it is that at is, the electoral yeah. level too. And I, I look at a lot of the, the political figures right now and ask myself, not what would they do, but what would they allow to happen? Would they stand against this tide? And, and the answer is no. I mean, yeah. would they, would they, if, if the base demands that legislatures overturn the, the popular vote, would X, you know, Republican candidate for governor, say in Wisconsin, uh, say, no, that's the wrong thing to do. And no, I, I, just, I don't think that's the case anymore. Okay, so let's talk about Virginia. What's going to happen in Virginia, do you think? I think Glenn Youngkin's going to win. Uh, I think there is a chance he could win quite, quite bigly. I mean, I, the seven, smart- seven, eight points. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the smart money is probably Youngkin plus three. But if if I was if I was looking to make some money on this and I could find good odds for Youngkin plus seven, that's probably where I'd put my bet. Okay. Uh, and I've I've been writing about this. Literally, I went back and looked at this mm-hmm. since May. I've been saying, hey, this guy Glenn Youngkin could win. Why aren't Democrats paying attention? You know, I've been waving my arms about this, and uh, it's very very bad for Democrats. Uh, both in the state, very bad for Democrats nationally, terrible omen for Biden, should be a real wake-up call. Although, I mean, if they're not awake by now, I don't know what it would take to get them to be awake. And uh, my one note of caution is that I don't know that Youngkin is replicable for for Republicans. Because what Youngkin, so what Youngkin did was 
he ran as a very MAGA candidate, but he triangulated. So we had a super MAGA candidate, Amanda Chase. We had a super rhino cuck establishment candidate and Pete Snyder. And uh, Glenn Youngkin triangulated between them. And because he's a self-funder, was able to drop $16 million or whatever into the race and, and get himself the nomination. And But he was because he was triangulating, he never had to go all the way on MAGA. He always left himself a sliver of deniability. And then once we got into the general election, he was like, Trump who? Yeah. I, 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 Donald, what? I don't, I don't he, even, he, he I, I looks was asleep. More, okay, tell me, because I, obviously I'm in Wisconsin, you're, you're right there, but he, he comes off more like a Mitt Romney than a Donald Trump. Yeah, yeah, I would Fair. say that's, that's very true. Uh, and honestly, the, there's a lot of like Mitt Romney 2012 to him, because don't forget, yeah. Mitt Romney, you know, played footsie with the Trump birtherism stuff during the primaries, right? So he does all that. And I think that's a pretty winning, winning position for, for Republicans. But so when I say not replicable, what I mean is that uh, Youngkin never had to face a Republican primary electorate. Hmm. And this is what everybody hmm. forgets. So for, you know, Virginia had a primary in 2017 and they had the establishment guy, Ed Gillespie, who ran against this no name Confederate loving guy named Corey Stewart, who's actually from my town, who had no money. And the establishment guy won by 5,000 votes out yeah, of almost 400,000 votes cast. Um, the the Republican Party was freaked out about this. They saw the polling for Amanda Chase, who was the Trump in heels candidate for this, and they concocted this absolutely cockamamie primary system for this year in which there were 39 drive-through sites where people voted in ranked choice and some of the ballots were actually offloaded to state and party uh, wow. mechanisms at the local level. I mean, to look at the arcane rules on this, you you couldn't believe it. And all of this was done to try to keep the Trump candidate out from, from winning the nomination and succeeded. I think that had this been an open voting primary, there's almost no chance that Youngkin could have won it. And if he did win it, he would have had to go so far out into Trump world uh, that this primary campaign that he has waged, where he has basically said Trump who, yeah. would have been impossible. So none again, this sounds no, like I'm trying to make excuses for Democrats. I'm really not like they should be scared as hell. Uh, that said, I just don't think that this is a as plug and play a solution for Republicans as they think, if that makes okay, sense. OK, so it does make sense. So but why is Terry McAuliffe on, on track to lose, assuming that you and I are both right about this because I agree with you? Uh, why in, in a, in a state that went very heavily democratic, that it, the conventional wisdom is, has been very, you know, has been trending democratic. Why would Democrats fail this year? Is it an issue? Is it the mood? What is your sense? What's, 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 what is the autopsy going to look like? So the autopsy is going to say three things. The first is national environment and okay. the national environment is terrible. Uh, you look, I mean, you, you saw the poll yeah. out today for Biden, which has his approval rating at a 42%, I think, uh, minus 12 underwater. The wrong track number is over 70% nationally. Uh, all of the news out of D.C. since August really has been terrible for Democrats, starting with the surge of the Delta wave in late July, going through Afghanistan with inflation, supply chain. I mean, da, 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 da. 
you can tell yourself, look, how many of these things are actually Joe Biden's fault? And some of them are, some of them aren't, but it doesn't matter to voters, right? Voters have just decided right. that this stuff is Biden's fault. So all of that has been a huge drag on McAuliffe. Uh, that's part one. Part two, McAuliffe has not been a great candidate. He's worked pretty hard, but he has had, I think, pretty dim strategic view of the race and not run a very good race strategically. He committed a a huge mistake in one of the debates where he said something uh, about how parents shouldn't be, shouldn't have final say over things the school boards should. Uh, Again, we could debate on that all we want, but just as a matter of politics, that's bad politics. He shouldn't have said it. It was a blunder. So, and, uh, and then on top of it, the, yep. the, the third piece of this uh, is that Yunkin is showing that in an off-year election, Trump is enormously helpful because Trump and the big lie fire up the Republican base in ways which it would not be fired up if it was just Glenn Yunkin, right? The, 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 the people down in... Halifax and uh, Henrico, all the all the places that are going to wind up being big red uh, Yunkin counties, they are turning out not because of Glenn Yunkin, but because of Donald Trump. He is on the ballot for them, and yet up in the blue counties in Northern Virginia and Triangle uh, and down the Richmond metro area, Trump looks like the past. Right. And you have Mm. people who are like, why should I worry about Donald Trump? We did that. You know, the whole point of electing Joe Biden was that we didn't have to think about politics as an existential matter anymore. And so the Republicans really get the best of both worlds on this. So last week, they had a Democrats in Washington had a chance to throw a lifeline to uh, to Terry McAuliffe, Um, obviously on on Thursday. Um, you know, you have the president who goes to the Capitol and says, you need to pass my infrastructure bill. Well, apparently he didn't actually ask for the vote, which was, I don't know, political malpractice, whatever, but everything fell apart. And everything I'm reading is the McCullough people are looking around going, what the hell? How do we end up here under the bus? Why would they leave? We needed a victory. So Democrats essentially send Joe Biden off to Rome empty handed and leave Terry McAuliffe spinning in spinning in the wind of another terrible news cycle. Uh, I'm not saying that would make would have made a difference, but uh, that's got to be one of those moments that people look back on and think, what what was going on? Did Democrats not understand that, you know, falling apart on this or having the circular firing squad would have these implications in a highly high profile gubernatorial election? You know, and this, Charlie, this gets to Tim Miller's piece today yeah. uh, over in the bulwark. It's it's not just about yelling at the marginal Republicans saying, why aren't you guys taking this seriously? It's about yelling at the Democrats and saying, why, why don't you guys take it seriously that right now Donald Trump is the odds on favor to to win in 2024? Because if, if you guys took it seriously and didn't pretend like, hey, Donald Trump was just another normal Republican or, hey, he's in the past, uh, then you'd be doing stuff right now to make the Biden administration more successful. And that would be your overriding idea. And you wouldn't actually care about whether or not uh, this thing was everything you wanted it to be. Or you would just say, look, we don't care. Let's pass it, move on and get back to voting rights. Right. Let's get back to the Electoral Vote Count Act. Yeah. Um, let's something. start shoring up the system in case this guy winds up as president again. And the Democrats just seem to, as a party, even at the very top, even, you know, in the Biden White House, to just assume that we are in a normal, ordinary political time. And God knows, I hope they're right. And I hope that people like you and me and Tim are wrong. Yeah. But I don't know, man. 
I don't, I don't, I don't know either. So looking at some of these, okay. So before I get into the, the polls, you mentioned before that the consequences will be obviously negative for the Democrats if they lose in Virginia. Let's leave aside the implications for Virginia uh, nationally. Will Democrats be a so freaked out by this that they abandon the Biden agenda and that the this uh, delicate balance falls apart, or b Will they be shocked into a certain sobriety that they will, in fact, take this more seriously? Where, where, what, what are you expecting? Well, I mean, in general, I just expect the worst possible outcome <laughs> all the time, and I'm rarely disappointed. Mm-hmm. So I, I, but I don't know. I mean, I could see it both ways. I could see this as being a slap to progressives. On the other hand, I could see progressives turning their turning around and saying, "Well, your guys are the ones who voted, who nominated Terry McAuliffe." And if only you had nominated a real progressive warrior in Virginia, then it would have been different, which is insane, by the way. Yeah, not true. It would not have been different. If anything, it would have been worse. Uh, I think Terry McCall was probably the best available pick on the board for Dems. He had a high name ID. He was a successful recent governor. Uh, He was pretty moderate. And I suppose you could make an argument that there could have gone to a fresh face or something, but not a fresh face with with really progressive uh, views that would not have worked in this state because the state is only like plus eight. You know, I know Biden won by plus 10, but uh, yeah. that's because he was running against Trump, who was a really bad candidate. Naturally, the state is probably plus seven, plus eight. And I I don't know. I mean, this is, Charlie, you and I like ask ourselves this all the time. Do the Democrats not see all the same, the same things that you and I are seeing? No, I don't think they do. I, I just... I don't, I, I don't think they do. Otherwise, they wouldn't be um, doing some... And of course, we get negative feedback when we point this out. Okay, so let me give an, an example, though of something that that I think that we've seen that they've been in denial on. Every bit of commentary that I've heard from the left over the last couple of months is we don't understand why everybody doesn't get on board with this uh, very, very progressive spending plan because they are wildly popular. Everything in this bill is wildly popular. Well, then we have this ABC poll yesterday that 70% of Americans, 69% of Americans say, they know just some or little to nothing about what's in these two <laughs> bills. And then nothing, American, and here's the killer, Americans don't feel these bills will help them or the economy if they become law. And again, this is the ABC News Ipsos poll uh, found that a plurality, 32% of Americans, think the bills would hurt people like them if they pass. Fewer, only 25%, think the bills would help them. And about 18% think the bills would make no difference. 24% said they didn't know. So I I, I don't know who they're going to point the fingers at, but Democrats have clearly done a terrible job of selling these ideas to the American public, of messaging these ideas to the American public. And I think they've been deluding themselves about how self-evidently popular they were. I could not agree with you more. The level of malpractice. I mean, let's just step back. Let's, Let's not even look at the perspective bills. Let's look at what they passed. The American Rescue Plan houses within it uh, a child family tax credit, which is probably the most pro-family policy which has been enacted by any administration in a generation. This puts money into the pockets of families with young kids all the way from low income, all all the way. Now it, it phases out over time, but you know you're getting real benefits all the way up to like the middle middle class or even parts of the upper middle class. This should be something which is absolutely transformative for people, uh, and which families and parents 
ought to know about and be mm-hmm. thrilled about and wedded to because it's not for forever. It's going to have to be reauthorized next year. And so this ought to be a club that Democrats can use against Republicans. Like, hey, we are the pro-family party. If you are a family with kids, we are the side that is giving you this money, which again is a tax credit. We're not, we're not giving you somebody else's money. We're letting you have your own money back. Uh, and and we're this is this is a thing that if you want this to continue, you vote Democrat. And and, and this instead, and this and this, by the way, would appeal to conservatives, uh, Republican voters, centrists, who in fact you know might think, hey, this is in my interest, and it is pro family, pro child. I mean, anybody yeah. with a couple kids at home, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Instead, what we have is we have parents who basically don't seem to know that it happens, but we have a whole bunch of. Uh, old people, Republican voters who know about this and they view it as welfare yeah. and they're angry about it. So again, you, you are in the exact sour spot in messaging where you have this thing which should be wildly popular and which you should be able to run on and the people who should like it don't know about it and the people who may not like it have been messaged in the opposite direction by the Republicans to think that these are the new welfare queens somehow. And, you know, I, I God knows, I've been on like lurking on Sarah focus groups where you hear the Republican voters say, oh yeah, this is just, you know, inciting people to go and have more kids. And so they refuse to work and they're just, you know, making babies to get this money. And you're like, are you, are you high? (laughs) But this is what Fox is telling them. It's like the Trump on the ballot thing, right? It's, you know, it's great for the Republican base and it's nothing for the democratic base at this point. And You know, and, and, and in the in the bubble that the Democrats have created for themselves, and I understand the people will say, well, you're engaging in both sides. Well, you know, both sides can make mistakes. Uh, that That is a reality. In their in their bubble, I, I would be interested to know what the um, media exposure of, you know, the leaders of the Progressive Caucus were versus the amount of airtime spent explaining the concerns of centrists like Stephanie Murphy, a Democratic congresswoman from Florida why they they might have some qualms about the spending. I understand that, that Kirsten Sinema doesn't want to talk to anybody, but you know, every once in a while, they'll stick a microphone in front of Joe Manchin, and I have to tell you, he sounds very reasonable, and yet you watch a lot of the cable shows, and you wouldn't think that there's any legitimate objections to any of it. And I think that guys like Joe Sinema, uh, John Sinema, <laughs> Joe Manchin, how about that? Uh, Joe, Joe, Joe Manchin, he sees this. He understands how this plays. Uh, and he's and he's trying, I think, to tug the Democrats back to the center. And uh, so I, I, I don't think that they they see the same things that we're seeing. Yeah. I, and my my argument here would be even if Manchin is wrong. Yeah. Who cares uh, if you are a Democrat? And you are looking down the barrel of an anti-democratic uh, Republican resurgence led by Donald Trump. It doesn't matter if Joe Manchin. Let's just pretend That's right. he's objectively yeah. wrong. Yeah. Uh, you guys got to get moving and pass stuff. And you got to make Biden more popular. And you got to make the party more popular. So you just got to give Manchin whatever he wants. And I'm sorry. That's not fair, but life isn't fair. Well, it's you also know, arithmetic. Is, it's just, yeah. do, do the math, people. You haven't won enough elections to get everything you want, and the way you're behaving is not going to get you there. Okay, so, JVL, the real reason that I wanted you to have you on the podcast, well, everything we've talked about, obviously, but uh, I, I want to talk about Facebook for a few minutes here. Yeah. Because you had a piece last week that sort of looked at, and I, and I will admit that, 
it's hard to keep track of everything that's been coming out. Part of the problem is that sometimes the journalism is so comprehensive that it's hard to get your head around it. But I think you you zeroed in on the key point is that that what we're learning about Facebook is even worse than we imagine. And we imagine pretty bad stuff. So just give me your sense of what we've learned about Facebook that turns out to be even worse than what critics had feared about it. Yeah, it's pretty bad. But but this is the interesting thing. It's bad, but not surprising. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's one of the things where the details are shocking, but the overall story is exactly what you would expect it to be. And the, the overall story is that Facebook has been prioritizing growth above everything else. They don't care what they have to do to grow. And that in the context of that, a bunch of bad things have happened. This is what we've been learning from the details of from the, the Facebook papers, the, the Francis Haugen documents, which yeah. she smuggled out. It's everything from Facebook being used to facilitate human trafficking to stoking political violence. Uh, there are a couple of really interesting use cases where Facebook went through trying to understand what their own platform was doing. Because in many ways, Facebook behaves like a black box that the people who work there don't even understand, you know, what comes out of it. And so in 2019, they set up a new user. Uh, they described her, her name was Carol Smith. They described her as politically conservative mother in Wilmington, North Carolina. Uh, they said that she was interested in politics, parenting, and Christianity. And they followed a couple mainstream brands like Fox and Donald Trump. And they didn't do anything then. They just they just let the algorithm start doing its own thing. And two days later, Facebook was pushing her to join QAnon groups. <laughs> that didn't take long, <laughs> right? And uh, and it's they did the same thing in India. And uh, you know they they set up a, a user in India just as a person living in Kerala. And all they did was for this experiment was they said we're going to follow every recommendation that the algorithm gives us. So, you know, if the algorithm tells me to join this group or watch this video or go to this page, I'm going to do it. And within like three weeks, uh, it was sending to like absolute like celebrations of political violence, pictures of dead bodies and like incitement to actual violence. And this is, you know, this stuff is it's happening because it works and Facebook is optimized to push people in really negative and toxic directions because that's how you get engagement and Facebook only cares about engagement. So these are, these are foreseeable outcomes. I mean, this is, this is the defense of course of, of Facebook would be, well, they're just the town square and this is, you know, other forces are happening and other things are, are taking place and, we just, you know, sit back and you know, are in some ways collateral damage. That's simply not true, is it? No, it's, it's simply not. not true. It's a, it, it's a, Facebook is a, you know, it's a mirror, but it's a funhouse mirror because again, it's, it's optimized for, it's, it's not just reflecting things back at you. It is optimized to get the reflections that are going to juice a very specific kind of engagement for them because that's what they can then monetize. So, you know, as we, we, we step back and take the 35,000 foot view of all of this, you know, I can't, you know, how many of our discussions and articles have been written about, you know, how American politics has gone crazy, how the right has lost its mind, why there is so much anger, how conspiracy theories have become central to our politics. It really is impossible to tell this story without talking about what Facebook is doing to us, that, that it is actually you know, central to the story of the derangement of American politics. 
Would yeah, you agree? I, I think that's true. And this is true of all social. I was in, by the in way. denial about this. I have to admit, I actually made the argument at one time that, you know, we have this huge supply of misinformation. We can't do anything about that. We have to do something on the demand side by making people smarter, wiser, savvier. Well, I look back on that and go, boy, I was that was very naive, yeah. given, given the power of these networks. I mean, it's so it's not just Facebook. I mean, Twitter does a, an aspect of this. Facebook does an aspect of this. And YouTube does a very large aspect of this. And they each do different things. Uh, Twitter really pushes the elites in different ways because Twitter is largely an elite echo bubble. Uh, YouTube spreads very serious misinformation. I mean, the truth is, as just as a fire hose of misinformation, YouTube is worse than uh, just about every place else, but Facebook connects the people together to make them feel powerful and to convince them that this thing that they're looking to join, whether it's uh, a group doing violent insurrections in Myanmar uh, and carrying out genocides in Myanmar or people who are getting involved with the, the Michigan anti-mask protests, it pushes them together and allows them to organize in ways that YouTube doesn't. And so again, this is why when we talk about the the influence of social and technology on our politics, I think you really have to talk platform specifically because what you would need to do to Facebook to detoxify it would be different than what you would need to do to YouTube or need to do to Twitter. So let's, uh, in, in a few minutes we have left, I want to get your take on where we're at in the pandemic. You have been tracking the pandemic uh, on in your newsletter. Um, I'm going to be getting my booster shot on Wednesday. That's the good news. What do you see as the as the trajectory at the moment? Uh, the vaccine mandates are kicking in. We see the vaccine protests, but the numbers seem to be pretty high. I'm looking at New York City. We're getting a lot of attention to the the people who are the holdouts, but you're looking at uh, you know in the area of 90, 90 plus percent of the employees actually getting the vaccine. So where are we at right now? What do you think? Uh, so, I mean, things are a little bit better. They're not great. Um, we're still 1,300 people or so dying every day, about 73,000 new cases every day. Uh, the reason to be a little bit optimistic, if you want it to be optimistic, is that we have boosters rolling out more widely, and we also have kid vaccines, so kids ages 5 through 11. Uh, I suspect that the uptake on the kids' vaccines will be even uh even slower than it is for normal vaccines because everybody gets, you know, it's one thing to say, I'm going to make a decision for myself. People get a little more squirrely when they say I'm making decisions for my kid. Uh, but so there are going to be a lot of kids getting vaccinated and that will help just reduce the pool of people who can be vectors. That's good. Uh, on the other hand, we're coming into flu season and the, you know, the, if, again, if you just look at the charts, uh, in October of 2000, we began a huge uptick and the, the numbers having been declining since September are flattening out right now. And maybe we're about to begin <sighs> a winter surge. So, I mean, I look at all this and I think to myself, not great, Bob. Uh, well, I, I had the really strong sense over the weekend though, being out and about that, uh, the public has given up on this, though. The, yes. the, the, the American people have decided it's over, it's done. Areas where I would have normally expected to see lots of masking, down to almost zero. So, I mean, that plays into all of this, that, that whatever alarms have been sounded and continue to be sounded, people are just done with it. Yeah. And you, you, know? you know what's going to happen this week, Charlie? 
This week, we're going to go over 750,000 deaths. Yeah. Five million three, worldwide. Yeah. Three quarters of a million. And those are just the, the official numbers here in America. The, the real, I mean, I, I keep saying this. It's going to take a very large act of forensic accounting once this is all over to go back and, you know, I assume that the epidemiologists will do this to figure out what the true number was. And it'll probably be anywhere between 20 or 50% higher than the official mm-hmm. case total right now. And I just, you know, do people even realize that? Do people realize that we're looking at three quarters of a million American deaths? And uh, I don't know. I just, I just feel like we're not going to fully start appreciating the consequences of this for a while because like those, those deaths, a lot of those people are voters where, where, how are those distributed? Are they distributed equally between the democratic and Republican side of the pod? I don't know that. Uh, uh, unlikely. Yeah. Uh, are they, how are they distributed geographically? Could it be that Arizona becomes uh, a little bit easier for either Democrats or Republicans because of COVID deaths? I don't know, but uh, it, it seems possible. And uh, so it's just, I don't know, the extent to which COVID is the story of our time, I, I still think has been not fully appreciated by well, people. The I, ramifications I, of this will take a decade or more. And and, and you and you see the, the, the way that things become normalized. The horrible becomes normal because I'm, I'm trying to imagine if we were having this conversation back in April or May of last year, thinking how many, how many Americans might die? And I think that we would have said, well, gosh, it was, you know, 100,000 or 200,000, it would be a, just an almost unimaginable catastrophe. And yet here we are with over 700,000. I mean, yeah. you know, I, I wonder, is it, I mean, part of it certainly is normalization, but or part of it numb. is it shows just how bad faith so many people are. So, I mean, you, you think back to the early days when we were looking at like three deaths a day or 12 deaths a day and people would say, oh, you know, we're not even at a thousand dead. Uh, you remember this? Like, yeah, you, I do this, this very is well. Like, you know, and you here, you are saying the sky is falling. It's not even. And there was a real question: like, do these people just not understand, or do they understand and they're just going to keep sliding the scale? And it turns out that almost all of those people, they would say the same thing at two hundred thousand. They would say the same thing at five hundred thousand, and they're saying the same thing at three quarters of a million. They they were never going to take this seriously because and, it was an article of faith for them. And if it was double that or triple that, I think that that would, uh, that yeah. would still apply. Still. So, uh, so for people who are Bulwark Plus subscribers, you know that you uh, not only get my morning shots, you also get JVL's triad every single day of access to other podcasts, including the next level, including the secret podcast. Uh, what is your triad? Can you give us a little bit of a preview of what your triad is for this Monday? This Monday yeah, in November. So- so uh, today, Monday, I'm talking about Virginia race and what the lessons of Youngkin are for Republicans and for Democrats. Uh, I try to keep it pretty short, three things to read every every day, which is why I've called the triad. Uh, so hit one, two, three, try to make people smarter, help them see around corners a little bit. Uh, I mean, I, I would say just, you know, since it's just us here, I could brag on myself. I mean, I think I've been pretty early to most of the big stories yeah. of our time. Like yeah. I was ringing the bell on COVID in February of, uh, of 2020. And, you know, I, I was telling people that Donald Trump was going to A, lose and B, say that he won and C, run again. Uh, I was telling people that Glenn Youngkin had a very good chance to beat Terry McAuliffe months ago. So uh, I think it's a place to, to help people see around corners in politics. No, I I, th- I think that's worth the price of admission to see around corners and to see things because I I remember uh, you know your warnings about the, what was going to happen on January sixth and of course uh, 
the, the, the whole election denialism while the rest of the punditocracy was prepared to move on. So uh, check it out. Uh, it, is, it is the triad. We have, we have multiple newsletters and multiple podcasts. JVL, thank you so much for joining me this morning. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Charlie. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow and we will do this all over again.